Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, Kevin's giving his report from Japan, plus his review of Andy Lau in the new film, The Adventurers. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, currently sitting in rainy South Carolina as I try to evade Hurricane Irma. And coming to us from his news desk in the land of the rising sun, that is Japan, uh, will be Mr. Kevin Ma. Um, Before we get to Kevin's section this week, uh, just a little bit of a This is a very much delayed episode because it's been pretty much two weeks of craziness. Um, We had a new little one born uh, almost two weeks ago, and we are also in the process of having evacuated Florida to try to evade uh, Hurricane Irma, which is at this time of recording now been downgraded to a tropical storm, but kind of has followed us uh, up the coast as we went north to stay with relatives. Uh, As a result, um, I've had very little time to record, and I've also managed to come down with the flu, so you'll hear that my voice is really not up to snuff. Uh, With this episode, Kevin was in Japan, and he sent in a trip report from Japan, including uh, some in-depth discussions of some of the films he saw, and also um, his review of Andy Lau's new film, uh, The Adventurers. So that's going to be the focus of this episode. I had intended to combine that with uh, my review of Death Note, but given that my voice is uh, not up to snuff for recording an entire episode. Um, I think I'm just going to let uh, Kevin carry all the weight this time, and we'll try to uh, make things up as we go. And I don't even have my proper mic with me as we're here on the road, so I don't I know how this is going to end up sounding in contrast with our regular episodes. So I do apologize if the sound quality uh, is a bit off this week, um, with Kevin both recording remotely and me kind of here recording remotely without my regular studio setup. So that being said, uh, I'm going to throw the ball over to Kevin as I do every week with his uh, trip report, and then that will be followed by his review of The Adventurers. Hello from Tokyo. Uh, Yeah, I'm sitting here in my hotel room. Uh, This is, I've been here since Friday now so this is the friday saturday sunday monday tuesday this is the fifth day of the trip and i fly back to hong kong tomorrow but um because of a scheduling problem uh we aren't able to record a live episode with myself and paul so i'm here doing a um my own report all the way out here from tokyo um i mainly took this trip because well it's my birthday and, you know, well, the number isn't a five or a zero, so therefore, not particularly an important year. Um, it is important because this is actually my 10th uh, 
birthday um, since I've moved back to Hong Kong, and I've spent uh, seven, six or seven of those birthdays or those years doing East Screen West Screen. So this um, ten years is, is very uh, significant to me, um, and I figured uh, I wanted to spend it uh, at one of my favorite cities, Tokyo. I I know this place very well. Um, I actually lived in Japan for a year, about twelve years ago, and near Tokyo. And Tokyo was a place that I always come uh, during weekends. So to me, it's a very important place, and it's one of my favorite places in the world. And um, I wanted to spend, you know, have a good time here. Um, so not much news this week. I haven't been able to follow the news, and I don't think there's been anything again that important. Um, I think last week we mentioned something about like you know. Oliver Stone heading the jury in Busan, um, Tokyo, maybe some announcement from Tokyo, I forget. Um, there was an announcement a couple of weeks ago about other 10-year remakes um, about Thailand. I think Taiwan and Japan are getting them, I think. Um, but more details will be announced for those projects later. And we already talked about Thailand version. So uh, I think I will wait until more official or bigger announcements to come before uh, I go back to doing news. So right now, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about my trip to Tokyo. Um, I This is a rare trip in that it's actually not thing to do with a film festival or film related event. Uh, there are, I, I've done some film stuff, so I, I guess I should mention those mainly. Otherwise, there's a lot of shopping, a lot of uh, eating, you know, the usual holiday stuff like normal people do. Uh, but of course, I'm here alone, and I did meet a few friends, which is good when I, you know, get nice meals and have good conversations, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, made me miss Tokyo a lot because I haven't been here in uh, two, almost two years now. Um, Film-wise, I watched a couple of interesting films. Uh, on the plane, uh, on the way over, I saw Takashi Miki's Blade of the Immortal, which is based on the manga, um, and it stars Kimura Takuya, who uh, you may remember from 24-6, the Wong Kar-wai film, or Love and Honor, the samurai film, uh, or as a star of Hero, the hit TV series, one of the biggest stars in Japan, and... Um, he stars in this colossal commercial flop uh, here in Japan as a uh, samurai who, uh, after uh, his sister is killed, um, becomes immortal. And the uh, original manga apparently says that he has to kill a number of souls before he can get he can get rid of his immortality. But uh, the film doesn't cover that territory. This means he's been alive for fifty years. And he can't be killed because he has these blood worms uh, that 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 um, recuperates his wounds. So kind of like Wolverine, but without the blades on his hand. It's all the blade is in his in his is, is you know he's holding the blade, but you know <laughs> he doesn't have the blade coming out of his hand. Um, but yeah, so he is uh, tasked to uh, protect uh, this young girl whose family has been killed by a rising uh, faction of of swordsmen, you can say, or samurai. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, so it's about this, 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 the, um, discovery, I suppose, his self-discovery, or his, this, this man, uh, this character, Comanjo, I think, um, his sort of discovery as a new role, um, as a guardian, you could say. Um, so, no, very, uh... 
commercial story and there's a lot of you know cutting killing um and all that stuff and um the action i think is fairly well done well done enough um but uh it's all kind of repetitive because um because you know the whole story is essentially um this swordsman manjo the the immortal swordsman um pretty much going one one after another one one you know em enemy samurai after another and killing them and then just going through them and then until he gets to the top uh and then of course it it, it concludes in this major major battle of like one guy versus a hundred people sword fight that is um Yo, I think Mike, Tabakashi Mike has been around long enough and he's so much experience with this type of films. If you remember 13 Assassin had like a 45 minute finale that was like a big sword battle. So he has experience with this kind of stuff. So, you know, to that in that sense, it's not any kind of a breakthrough. Uh, Kimura Takuya is, you know, fairly solid as usual. But um, again, the problem is that the script is just quite repetitive and it it's 140 minutes long and so by the time you get to an hour and a half and it's still cutting people through and the story doesn't seem to be going anywhere it, it does feel dragged a little bit um because it doesn't have a setup the way that 13 assassins did 13 assassins takes about an hour and 15 minutes whatever 30 minutes to essentially pave the way for this huge huge battle and and in that 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 90 minutes has a lot of dramatic power because you have these factions and alliances between the characters um and the script structure is just a lot more interesting and it holds the attention much better but here it gets kind of repetitive and it's a bit it's a bit slow um so really you have to either love the, the source material or you really have to be into samurai movies well, it is a, a, a samurai action movie, so you do have to. Ex it's not like a Yoji Yamada samurai trilogy kind of thing. It's a, you know, balls out, um, swordplay action movie. But you have to be able to kind of be expect that it is going to be repetitive. And if you're like, well, I don't want, I just want my movie to have endless sword fights. Then there you go. Then you know, perhaps Blade of the Immortal is for you. It's very odd because. Um, with that cast and the source material, the popularity of the source material, and the the director, and uh, it's a big commercial studio film. You would think that the film has been sold to a lot of places and actually had you know theatrical release in other countries. But as far as I know, it hasn't. It hasn't played in festivals beyond Cannes. Um, it was at Cannes as um, a special presentation out of out of competition. Uh, but as far as I know, there's no Hong Kong release date. There's no Taiwan release date. It hasn't been released in other countries. Uh, and now it's already on the plane. Well, I watched it on uh, Japan Airlines. So naturally, it would have this film. Um, so a bit odd. Um, I thought that it would make its way to America even. But no, it hasn't quite made its way overseas yet. So that was very odd. But yeah, um, so like I said, Mike, Kimotakuya, swordplay, action, repetitive swordplay. If you're a fan of those things... Sure, go ahead. See if you can watch Blade of the Immortal. Um, another film that I got to watch, um, very interesting film, um, is called Sekigahara. Um, I actually found out that there were English subtitle screenings of this film like a day before um, I went to Japan. Um, it came very last minute. Um, Sekigahara is a very decisive battle uh, between two factions and it's solidified uh the took the iesu uh iesu shogunate which was i think the last 
the last shogunate of Japanese history. Um, and it was very much a paradigm shift in the government. And uh, Sekigahara was a very decisive battle. They essentially wiped out the remaining forces of the previous, uh, the previous shogunate. Um, and this film um, is a two and a half hour film, and it's uh, sets up the all the political maneuvering and the character dynamic that led to the battle. And um, of course, the battle itself, it's about the last half hour of the film, and it shows really how messy these alliances were, and how shaky they were, and how you know it one one sort of alliance or one shift in the alliance really changed the pattern uh, of the war. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's a very interesting idea. But the thing is, the film has a lot of characters. Um, and, you know, I, I watched the film with English subtitles all the way and I stayed awake. I promise I, I stayed awake through all 149 minutes of it. But there was just so many characters. Um, the main two characters are uh, Ishida, who who is you know who is the played by Jun Chiokada, a boy band um a boy band member, and uh, Iesu is played by uh the great 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 Koji Yakusho, who was in Shall We Dance and who was in uh, 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 um, uh, Chronicles of My Mother, which was also directed by Hanada Masato Hanada, the same director here, um and of course a lot this this one of the greatest Japanese actor living actor right now um so he brings a lot of gravitas to the idea and the film is interesting because Iesu is quite revered in Japanese society like I say he's the he's the uh head of a shogunate um uh, and of course he's a very well respected figure but the film very interestingly um portrays him uh in sort of a a wily uh, scheming way it shows him he's he's the one who sort of initiates these political maneuvering um so and, and and his methods are can be ruthless and he is sneaky and but apparently um i've asked some locals here whether whether um Iesu has been portrayed like this before and apparently it hasn't there's a very new way so ishida um ishida the 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 losing side this is history this is not a spoiler right the losing side of the uh um the battle he is depicted as like the hero he's the idealist he's the loyal one um almost stubbornly so um, and he has this whole love love story arc uh, with a ninja, that, with a ninja played by young actress uh, Arimura Kasumi or Kasumi Arimura, um, and it's a very odd subplot. Um, but you know it kind of holds up. Actually, Arimura, to to her credit, she does fairly well in the in an action role, so uh, it's very interesting to see that. Um, but I, it did it did. Um, motivate me to go look up the history after the film um i haven't read like a very detailed thing i mean there's just way too many details like i read one review that the whole battle the character actually involves more like 150 characters or 100 characters and harada the director he's already cut it down to about 50 um so so i just couldn't tell what the hell is going on but it is very ambitious of course when you take on this big topic and it it felt like there was a director's touch to it uh, so it was very interesting that way. Um, it's not a typical swordplay. It's not a typical period film. You could tell there's a director's touch in there, and the way he edits, and the way he shoots things, and the way he wraps, he he certain he shoots angles of actors. Um, 
it, it's uh interestingly made film it's not perfect by any sense it's very flawed in fact like i said i was confused most of the time and and some again one of the locals told me that he was actually confused as hell and he's japanese and again yesu is a very major you know well-known character in japanese history so that was a very interesting angle um and and i can't imagine um it appealing really to anyone who is not a japanese history buff because um it's just so big and the film doesn't do any favor i mean they put an english subtitle screening out in japan they um from what i've heard is that because harada is is very much he, he very much cares about the international market and having an international audience for his films so it's more interesting that that the film doesn't have any on-screen caption for these characters uh no i you know why that is so that makes the characters much harder to track so um but all in all it's an interesting period war film if you're interested in that kind of thing um so i suppose um again of course the fans of the actor should definitely watch it again yakusho koji koji yakusho um just one of the greatest japanese actors living alive and he's such a larger than life role here you know it's almost only fitting that he's in it um so interesting a flaw yeah uh and then what i did uh um i did watch one unsubtitled japanese film and that's uh mary and the magical flower which is the first film of studio pinnock um it is the uh direct not the directorial debut it's actually the first film under uh director kome bayashi uh he was the director of arietti um, over at Studio Ghibli, and uh, he left the studio to start his own company. And this film was made with the blessing of the three top um, founding members of Studio Ghibli because they show up in the special credits or in the special thanks and in, uh, in the end credits. Um, the film is a very in, you know magical tale. It's based on a book. Um, and it's about a young girl who gains um, power, witch powers witchery power out of sorcery power witch powers whatever when she picks up a, a magical flower and then she gets dragged up to the to the world of witches and the wizarding world kind of thing and realizes that it's a lot darker than it seems um the story is nothing really to write home about it's a typical sort of girl's odyssey um although there are some very little detailed things that are quite interesting um from you know from a, a storytelling or a storytelling point of view or traditional storytelling point of view um but the art the artwork uh the uh design actually looks exactly exactly like a, a studio ghibli film which turned me off a little bit because yeah okay i mean he's doing his own thing so and he did start out in um in ghibli and that is this is sort of how he how he got his start so why what's wrong with him having picked up that style and then but then putting it in its own studio which is a bit odd to me um you know it's, it's an okay story I'm, i have a feeling this film will get uh, a lot of well not a lot of international attention but it will travel um just for the name and, and the fact that you know it's uh it's been uh, it has the blessings of the studio ghibli people and it does look very much like a studio ghibli film um so in that sense that's you know if you're an anime fan and you can't wait for this new Miyazaki movie. This might hold, this might hold, you know, this might keep, you know, hold you for a little bit longer. Um, yeah. 
but I saw it unsubtitled. I, I, I learned some Japanese. I understood about a good 40 percent of the film. So, um, uh, so I don't know if the storytelling is very clear, but it just didn't really excite me. It, the 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 visuals are good, but I didn't. I don't feel the enchantment or the. Uh, deeper message that Miyazaki films or Studio Ghibli films usually do. They have that. They Their films are like a work of art. But here, it's, okay, it's a moving... It's art in a very superficial way. It's visual art. Um, but the, the storytelling for me is a bit stilted, and I didn't find it really that enchanting, the story itself. So, um, But maybe I'll watch an English subtitle version just to make sure. But it, it's okay. It's, not, it's an okay start for a new studio... But uh, um, I hope Komebayashi uh, would learn to sort of start start churning out his own style, we could say. Start fine-tuning his own style and get away from that really usual, you know, that traditional Studio Ghibli look uh, to the animation. Well, last but not least, I went to um, uh, Tachikawa. Uh, the the suburban district uh, about 35 40 minutes by train uh and i watched a uh, baby driver the new edgar wright film uh in this uh si special cinema uh well it's not special cinema but the cinema has a special couple of screens where they installed extra speakers uh and with with you know louder bass and they turn up the settings and they call it baku on which means like explosive sound um, and of course, knowing Baby Driver is a film that has a you know, plays a large emphasis on the music. I figured this is something I have to do. Um, so I went all the way out there this morning and I watched the film. Um, uh, of course, I had a great time. The film is still very fun, and Edgar Wright is I think Edgar Wright's most original film uh, by far. You know, it's it's interesting to see him getting off that parody spoof thing, even which he also did in Scott Pilgrim, by the way. It's about spoofing other film style, but here I think he's sort of really developing, developed his own style, even though it's done with existing music. So it's not a uh, as original, you know. But the, the issue of authenticity and, and originality, I mean, we can, we don't have time to go into that. But anyway, um, so the film was loud, very loud, um, and I enjoyed myself a ton. Um, the sound literally made my chest rumble that's how loud the film was so um it, it just it just goes to show that really the theatrical experience it's really still a very treasured thing i mean how do you do a bakuong or explosive sound set up in your own home you know unless you're super rich and you have a movie theater in your house and you can soundproof that room and then you can turn on turn up your movie however loud you want but where else but a cinema can you do that for regular people um so it was a very fascinating experience. <sighs> Sorry, Paul, you have to edit this out. <laughs> the sneeze. And and it, it's just something, again, that proves that the theatrical experience is something worthy of saving. Um, it's just not a film to watch on your computer, no matter how good speakers you have. It's at home. You're, you can't have that same experience. So... Um, uh, I enjoyed myself a ton, and um, it's been like that. And tomorrow, I, I will try and watch another unsubtitled Japanese film, but you know, I don't think it will travel very much, and it's not quite worth talking about, at least at this moment. So um, that's it for now for my Tokyo report. Um, uh, I think Paul may have some questions when I come back, and uh, but uh, let's see what happens. I mean, we all know that 
Paul is, is about to welcome welcome a bundle of joy, a new a second bundle of joy. Uh, so best of luck to Paul from Tokyo, and you know his whole fa- his family is in my in, in my thoughts, or my thought you know um, uh, and I wish them um, the good week, a good month, uh, good luck to everything, and uh, that's it. Uh, we'll see you when we come back. Oh, but actually, right after this, uh, my review of. Um, Stephen Fong's The Adventurers. So this week's film is The Adventurers. Uh, this is the latest film from uh, actor-director Stephen Fung. Well, he barely acts anymore. But this is, I think, his first uh, film after he went to Hollywood to work on Into the Badlands with Daniel Wu. So this is his big return, I guess, to Chinese cinema. The film stars Andy Lau, uh, Taiwan actor Yo Yang, and Shu uh, Qi, and uh, France um, actor Jean Reno. And it's a heist film. Um, this review is going to sound a little more uh, improvised because uh, it's recorded very quickly and I didn't write many notes. So I'll try and make it through uh, very quickly. But um, the story. Sophisticated burglar Deng Zhang, played by Andy Lau, walks out of prison after a five-year term. He reunites with his wingman, Po, an expert in computer hacking and weaponry, and they're joined by Red, Xu, uh, played by Xu Qi, a beautiful and intelligent chameleon. Um, which means they don't really know what she does. The trio uh, cleverly find their way into a startup-studded charity op- uh, auction and successfully steal a priceless jewel um, that w- one part, which is one part of a three-part uh, big ju- uh, accessory that will become one of the most valued piece of jewelry ever produced. Um, the three are under the surveillance of Pri- Pierre. A hard-boiled French detective who sent Dan to jail uh, five years earlier. Dan goes to find help from his surrogate father, Kong, played by Eric Zhang, a ruthless crime box uh, boss who commissioned the heist, and Kong assigns Dan a new mission. Meanwhile, Pierre tracks down Ember, played by Zhang Chu, who is Dan's girlfriend before he was sent to prison, and he convinces her to help him find Dan. Um, so from um, Dan and his team search for the jewels across Europe while playing a game of cat and mouse with Pierre. Uh, as the final confrontation ensues, Dan's true agenda for his mission resurfaces. So, as I was saying, this is the return of Stephen Fung uh, with sort of his new Hollywood expertise, and it's a big, glossy heist movie um, that's very much... Some have, I think the film at first was marketed as a remake of Once a Thief, once a thief excuse me uh as once a thief uh john woo's once a thief um but i'm i think they're at least trying to create that kind of vibe it uh it's a picturesque set in europe and you know it's about beautiful people stealing beautiful things and that's i think where the comparison ends um i think well i haven't seen once a thief in many years so i don't quite remember 
how good or what that film was like. But um, first of all, it, it, Andy Lau and Yo Yang and um, Shu Chi, the team is they're okay. They have a certain chemistry as a team, um, but you know they're not like Charon Van Nessie Charon and and Sherry Chong. Let's face it. Uh, so you already have that problem there. I mean, they're just. It's hard to to not make that comparison when you have John Woo's producer Terence Chang on board as a producer of this film, um, but it's a very slick, very big budget, um, uh, heist movie, um, and it has pretty people and it has great locations and it's shot in a very polished way because uh, it was actually shot by um, the same DOP who worked on Into the Badlands, at least the pilot. So he's a Hollywood. Um, a cinematographer and it has a Hollywood crew um, so there's no doubt that the film looks technically very very smooth and 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 the budget is still all there on the screen but the problem is there's a script that's written by five people and yet they were so um, what's the word they adhere so closely to the genre um, that it's hard to believe that five people could write such a lazy script. Um, essentially, every beat of the heist movie is there. The whole they create these these amazing gadgets, and you know which <laughs> uh, 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 I thought you know they were all from Kickstarter or something. Because I mean, how can you? The problem is the problem with heist movie is that when you watch these really high tech heist movies, you know, like Entrapment or Ocean's Eleven or whatever. But Ocean's Eleven kind of. It's, it's very tongue-in-cheek, but here it's not. It's a very straightforward uh, heist movie. It's light, uh, it's entertaining, but it's also in, incredibly um, um, insignificant by the time you finish watching it. Uh, they do these things, and a villain shows up, and there are life-and-death situations, but afterwards, it it's tries so hard to be slick and lightweight that how do you, you know, you... Would you who would you blame that you know, the film is too lightweight? You know it's true. That's the thing, that is a problem. So it's not a terribly memorable film. Andy Lau is Andy Lau. You know he's always good and in in some ways and even though he's playing himself, um, and Shu Chi is charming enough. Uh, she, uh, working with her now husband Stephen Fong. Uh, she's you know very attra- uh, very attractive and and doesn't hasn't aged a day and she's you know. She handles this thing very easily. It was almost like too simple for her. And Yo Yang fits in nicely as a psychic. Um, uh, but then you have to keep wondering, like, how does he make a living just waiting around? And as I was saying, you know, there's a whole vicious cycle of heist. Is that um, why do they keep spending so much money on these impossibly high tech gadgets? I mean, do 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 the pay, the heists pay for themselves? Like, do you? do one heist just to pay for the next one and then you have to do that heist just to pay for the next one and so on and so forth do these people make any money like it's it's very odd um so uh they have no real sense of humor about that like i said if they were really relying on uh, what looked like kickstarter gadgets you know what happens you know, the heist would never take off because we all know that heist kickstarter gadgets you know, take forever to arrive and they never arrive on time um, but you know, some of these really weird gadgets. One, there's one gadget that uh, costs Spidey that pretty much does like everything. Um, it, it explodes and it's a camera and blah blah. And then you keep wondering, 
they could have just done the entire heist with Spidey. But no, they keep they have to do some other gadgets and whatever before they can even use Spidey. And it's what a one one gadget fits all solution to things, uh, instead of doing uh real a lot of planning. But you know, it's heist movie is always tricky to write and it's always tricky to shoot. And I think Stephen Fung is going back to that whole commercial roots as a director, um, as a light uh, maker of light uh, escapist films. Uh, after Tai Chi, Tai Chi trilogy really just fizzled out, really like like a wet firework. Um, uh, so so this is sort of his way of showing that he can still make commercial films and slick commercial films. I can't say that he's very successful because the film is so forgettable and so bland. And that is his biggest crime, you know, in this day and age. This film could have been made 20 years ago because, you know, Once a Thief was like 30 years ago. And, and I doubt that film ages if, you know, compared to The Avengers. Um, it's certainly better than the... Uh, uh, what was the last one? I think uh, um, the the horse movie that that starred that was directed by Lee Chi Ai and starring uh, uh, Kelly Chan and Tony Leung. It's certainly better than that film. That film was really a a bit of a mess. And here it's it's very much um, uh, aware of what kind of genre it's in, and perhaps it follows the rules a bit too much. But it's um, delight, entertaining. And utterly, utterly forgettable. Um, so if you watch it for the stars, that's fine. I mean, Andy Lau is Andy Lau. He doesn't change at all. If you want to watch this teamwork together or, you know, just... Is it worth watching for the actors, I suppose? But if you're actually looking for some kind of update to the heist genre or something new or something tongue-in-cheek or something that's even remotely kind of interesting, you might have uh, the wrong film. Um, so... Okay, but not good or bad or whatever. It's a, it is a commercial film, and it's a commercial film that you forget about in two weeks. In fact, if we talk about this at the end of the year or next year, I will not even remember having seen it. So, um, that's the uh, adventures. Uh, I hope I didn't really, um, I didn't mess up anyone's uh, wishes to watch it, uh, because I know there was a lot of fanboy buzz around it. They 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 felt they thought it was exciting. Um, and I'm here to say that, it, well, I'm not here to say anything. I'm here pretty much to burst your bubble. So, uh, sorry, fanboys, this may not be the film you're looking for. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. And you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snouser Radio Orchestra. Researchers come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com at concast. You can email us eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook at East S West S. 
as always, I do urge you to follow with everything he's doing, uh, Kevin, uh, that is the, um, at the Golden Rock over on Twitter. You can also check out uh, his news site, which is having some life once again. Now that he's gotten a little bit more time. That is asiainsinema.com. Uh, and of course, you can follow him on Twitter as well. So please check out everything that he's doing. Also, please check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network and all the interesting work uh, on Hong Kong cinema that is coming out there. A, uh, I guess a, a short, uh, quick mention too, if you are into taking online courses, online MOOCs, um, there, the, the course that we talked about last year, um, Hong Kong Cinema Through a Global Lens, is being run once again. Uh, this is the, they ran it earlier this year, and both myself and Kenneth Brorson uh, took the course and really enjoyed it. It's a uh, fairly short uh, six-week stint where they get into some of the more well-known aspects of uh, Hong Kong cinema, um, you know, people like Jackie Chan and John Woo and Wong Kar Wai, uh, among others. And they talk a little bit about how Hong Kong cinema sits academically with regard to some theories on globalization um, and sort of the international discourse that surrounds uh, some of the more popular films. So it's a very interesting course. It's free. You can check it out over on uh, edX, you just look up courses for Hong Kong U or Hong Kong Cinema in the search and it should come up. Um, and it's very enjoyable if you're a fan of Hong Kong Cinema and you haven't taken it, now you have another chance to take it once again. So our next show, uh, episode 240, what I've planned is to do a series of short episodes with uh, my friend Kenneth Brorson from Podcast on Fire. He's going to be guest hosting with me as we talk about uh, the film series Yuppie Fantasia, and I think we're going to be breaking it into three short segments where he talks a little bit uh, with me about the early films and then rounding it out with the new film which came out earlier this year. Uh, so that's kind of what we have planned in the interim period here while I try to get back to a somewhat normal schedule, and uh, once we can do that, then um, we'll be back to things as, as normal for myself and Kevin um, in, in hosting and producing these shows. So that's what you can expect in the coming weeks, and hopefully by you know, mid to late October we'll be back to a sense of somewhat normalcy um, based with all the craziness that's going on right now. And I do wish everybody well, uh, whether you're part of this storm or any of the other storms that are out there right now. Um, or you're just listening to us from afar, uh, thank you for sticking with us, and thank you for your patience uh, during this period. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Green, West Green podcast saying, we wish you good viewing, and be safe, and we'll see you next time. we